Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ultimately, that makes you look around the table and think, why am I the only woman? Why am I the only woman on the board? Why am I the only woman, female CEO in my industry when there's so many incredible women who I know, who I work with, who work for me? Um, There must be something that I can do about that. Welcome to The Power Hour, the weekly podcast that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas global ambassador and entrepreneur. Each week, I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just one hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon, or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration, the Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I am joined by two fantastic businesswomen who have each achieved incredible career success individually before coming together to combine forces. Together, they are the founders of The Albright, a women's-only London-based members club and home to a community of smart-minded women dedicated to championing sisterhood. The Albright was founded in 2017 with the aim of empowering and arming professional women with the confidence that they need to realise their full potential across all stages of their career. They now have three clubs that host networking events, meetups, launch parties, fabulous food and drinks, a beauty salon and a fitness studio. They really have thought of everything. I'm so excited to hear from them today about the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, balancing work life and motherhood and why they are so passionate about encouraging collaboration instead of competition. Welcome to the studio, Debbie Wasco, OBE and Anna Jones. Thanks for Hi, having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming in. I usually have one guest, so I'm loving that we've got two in here today. <laughs> it's brilliant. And I mean, I haven't seen you for quite a while. Anna, I've worked with you before. Debbie, we actually hadn't met until yeah, today. It's the first time. Which I've is, heard a lot about you. Oh, well, I feel like it's ditto, actually. Um, and it's great to, to have you both here. And firstly, I mean, congratulations on the success of the Albright. You know, you have the two in London and now the opening of the newest club in Hollywood, LA. That's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So exciting. And it feels just like, I mean, I mean, I'm sure that it's just the start. It seems that way. It seems like it's just, you know, there's such a demand for it. I feel like everybody who I speak to who goes to the Albright or who has been to the Albright, you know, there's such a buzz around it, you know, telling other people, recommending, saying, oh, you, you must go, you must go. It's absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it's just at the start. Well, the sisterhood is building and that's the exciting thing. So, yeah, we're delighted about what we've done so far, but we've still got a lot to do. Yeah. Okay, so before we talk more about the Albright, I think I'd really love to hear from each of you individually about your journeys before and what brought you to this place. I mentioned at the start that you've each had amazing careers. So Anna, if you could go first, you are the former CEO of Hearst Magazines and you previously worked in marketing, in print and digital media. So what was the journey like and how did that journey ultimately lead you here? So, uh, yeah, well, the journey, I guess I've worked in media most of my career, but I actually started out in comms. So I came to London, um, like many of my fellow graduates, thinking, what am I going to do? I need a job. And I managed to get a job in um, communications for a company called Ketchum. Um, But I knew, although I enjoyed it, I sort of thought I wanted to do a bit more than just comms. And so I branched out into marketing uh, through going to work in for a video games company. And that was, I guess, my first foray into all things digital, working with lots of um, guys, 
pretty much all men um, coding all night. Not me. I was in marketing. Um, but they were sort of, you know, creating these realms and dungeons and dragons and so on. And it was whilst it was super interesting, I thought it wasn't really going to be for me long term because um, I really, really wanted to work in the media. And I managed to get um, a job at a company called EMAP that at the time was this really exciting, very buoyant, vibrant company to work at. Um, we were launching magazines, you know, lots of different magazines that people may have heard of. Um, we worked on Elle and Red and we worked on, uh, we, I worked on the launch of Grazia, which was amazing. Um, and I guess I sort of learnt my craft um, in marketing whilst I was um whilst I was at EMAP. And then I really just sort of moved through the ranks um, into different roles in different companies, um, all in mainly in magazines. Um, and I was marketing director and then I put my hand up for digital director and I learned a lot about um, digital um, basically because my boss at the time sort of pulled me in one day and said, uh, yeah, we haven't got anyone to run this digital department. It's, it's sort of marketing. It's kind of about consumers. Will you go and do it? And so I just said, okay, fine. So I kind of added that onto the list, the to-do list. And then I suppose from that, I, I, I've moved up the ranks through um, strategy. Um, and then my the company I worked for was actually acquired by a big American company called Hearst. And at that point, I thought that I would be on my way to a different career path or perhaps starting my own business. Um, but the Hearst actually asked me if I would go and be COO, so Chief Operating Officer of the combined business. Um, and I did that for a few years and then ultimately became the CEO. So I guess um, I have spent most of my career building brands for women. Um, at Hearst, we had you know loads of very well-known magazine brands like Cosmopolitan and Elle and Harper's Bazaar and a few for men as well, but they were mainly for women. And most of my team there were women as well. So I guess um, I was used to working with women, used to building up brands and communities uh, for women. And also, surprisingly, was um, a female CEO, and there were not many of us. So, ultimately, uh, that makes you look around the table and think, "Why am I the only woman? Why am I the only woman on the board? Why am I the only woman female CEO in my industry when there's so many incredible women who I know, who I work with, who work for me? Um, there must be something." that I can do about that. And ultimately, um, you know, I, that made me start to think about what I wanted to do next. And I'm sure we'll come on to talk mm. a bit more about how we came up with the idea for Albright. But for me, the catalyst was really meeting a kick-ass woman like Debbie, who ultimately became my my co-founder. Mm. Well, it's really interesting. And, you know, the way you tell it, you know, very modest, but I'm sure you know, you had to have a lot of confidence to to step out and, you know, to raise your hand or to take on those responsible roles. And, you know, where do you think that leadership element comes from? Have you always had that, do you think? Well, look, I'm the eldest of four girls, so okay. I'm naturally quite bossy. Um, you have to be a feminist, you know, when you're the uh, the eldest of, of four girls. Um, and I think you sort of do take charge, but also I'm a northerner, so I've got this whole kind of like, right, okay, who's going to do it? Just get on and do it and, and, and kind of work hard. I've always been a hard worker. And also, if there's something that needs fixing or there's a problem or someone says who's going to do it, then I will usually say, I'll do it. And ultimately, if you keep doing that and so when opportunities come your way if you're the one that's seen as being the problem solver then I think it's hugely helpful for your career and you, you do stand out because there are it always surprises me that there are so many people who when there is something to do in a work scenario you say who's going to do it and everyone looks at the floor or looks away rather mm. than saying well I'll, I'll do it and you do start to get noticed particularly early on in your career if you're seen as a fixer. Mm. And I guess people then have the confidence in you but you must then have the confidence in yourself because I think often the, re the reason people might not raise their hand is because they think, well, I don't have that skill set or, or maybe I'll fail, maybe I can't do it. But I guess the more times you've done it and you kind of go, well, I'll figure it out, the more you think, well, maybe I can do that again. Well, most of these things are not rocket science. You know, most business problems, I think, are fairly logical things to solve. They might seem overwhelming, but if you break them down and if you've got a good bunch of people around you, then usually you can figure it out. And, and it's not that I always feel like I'm confident and that I know how to do something. I just think, what's the worst that can happen? And, you know, I often used to say that to my team at Hearst. I say, look, you know, it's fine. No one's died. We've, we've lived to fight another day. Let's move on. 
Brilliant. And Debbie, you created Love Home Swap and you are an angel investor and you frequently back female founded companies. So looking back on your career journey, was it inevitable that you were always going to create something like the Albright? You know, I've had a very different career to my co-founder who has had a sort of elegant rise to the corner office. And that has not really been my story because I have worked for myself for the last 20 years since I was 25. Uh, So my entrepreneurial journey, uh, if you like, began quite young. And I think also by way of context, everybody in my family is an entrepreneur. They wouldn't really, that's a very fancy word, they wouldn't really describe themselves as that. But I grew up, again, in the north of England, like Anna, in a Jewish immigrant family where everybody uh, worked for themselves. And my grandmother ran a chain of sweet shops and off licenses. And I had that as a backdrop to my own life, you know, very um, early memories of her driving around in her armoured van dropping off cash at the bank. She never learned how to reverse. Um, and so having that as a as a role model or as context and around the dinner table, business was always discussed um, because it was sort of a bit in our DNA and it was normal for that to be a family topic. My mum was also an entrepreneur. Um, and so having these role models who as women were mums, um, were very much, you know, the, the cornerstone of their family, but also had and built successful careers off their own back. I think with hindsight, very much normalised the route that I have taken. And I think also starting your own business at 25, um, you know, lots of people have asked over the years why or wasn't that terribly brave. Actually, it isn't at all brave doing it at that age because you have nothing to lose. You don't know a great deal. Um, And my first business was just an amazing business education. It was an agency called Mantra that did communications and digital marketing. And I learned everything on the job about how to manage the bank account, how to manage a P&L, how to build a team, how to hire, how to fire, how to deal with horrendous market conditions at the first dot-com crash in 2000 and 2001 and how to you know find that inner steel and tenacity which enables you to continually get out of bed every day even when you don't feel like it and I think part of the entrepreneurial journey that people don't really talk about is how it can be in equal measure um, impossible and depressing and boring and every other negative emotion at any one time but Mm. I think developing that steely core that says, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to be beaten and I'm doing it for myself and I'm doing it for the team and I'm doing it because I'm bloody minded and lots of other characteristics that are not necessarily that positive but become part of your makeup, I think is what I've learned a lot um, over the last 20 years. So I've built and sold three different businesses, the last of which was Love Home Swap, as you referenced Uh, which shows that inspiration can strike at any time because I was flying back from a holiday with my two children when they were very young. So I think the youngest was three months. And I watched the movie The Holiday. For those of you who have seen it, which may not necessarily be Oscar-winning material, but nonetheless, it is the original home exchange film because Cameron Diaz swaps homes with Kate Winslet. And I thought... Does that even exist? Because actually, I've just spent all my money on an expensive hotel in the Caribbean whilst my home in London sat empty. And it was that time in my life where I was feeding one child with the lights off and the sound off on the TV, eating room service, trying to not wake the other child up. And you just, at that time, really want to swap your life, or I did. And that was this, what became Love Home Swap. And over the next five and a half years, I built that business from being an idea on a plane to selling it for $53 million to Wyndham, the hotel group, in the summer of 2017, which sounds peachy, doesn't it, and easy, and it wasn't at all easy. And I think the thing that marks you out from other people giving it a go or, you know, I'm sure we're going to discuss a bit what it is that determines success or life choices or I honestly think is just the sheer bloody-mindedness to keep going and... um, I'm always intrigued by people who manage to push through. James Dyson's recent book is really interesting on that topic. He talks a lot about the inflection point in business being that moment when you are so fed up that you want to give up and not giving up. 
when other people would give up mm. makes the real difference in terms of driving scale. So I've learned every single lesson under the sun about all of that and still continue to learn again, make the same mistakes, hopefully learn a bit better. You know, and I think to bring that to sort of the present day for me, I was always the only woman in the room. You know, we know the stats, only 2% of capital raised goes to back a female founder. In 2018, a penny in the pound invested in the UK, back to business co-founded by two women. Given that Anna and I raised £25 million in that year, that probably was all us, to be quite honest. So, you know, we're not at the table, ladies. And for me, it's always a mixture of push and pull. It's always a mixture of the impossible dream. And you've got to have a bit of a dark centre, I think, to sort of keep you going. Mm -hmm. Because it is that combination of optimism and bloody-mindedness. And when Anna and I met, and what became Albright was our shared experience and vision for how we might create a different landscape for women based on 20 years of our experience, how we might create a different landscape for our daughters as well as our sons and how we might change the conversation for women at work. And, and that was sort of what made us, when we met at a party because we were set up by a mutual friend, he said, you two should be friends and they really called it right. And that combination of chemistry and a shared attitude and work ethic but this mix of very different skill sets and different personality types but that real sense of the drive and determination and focus and very short memories which means that we never remember how awful something was the day before just kind of on to the next thing I think is the thing that's powered us through what has been by anyone's standards, a very full on two and a half years with lots more to come. Mm, it's actually shocking when you when you know I've known of the Albright for that for that long, but to think that that's just two and a half years. Mm. You you know if you were to discover the Albright and and listen to you talk now, you'd probably think it'd been running for you know almost ten years. It just seems there's so it much. Does feel like it? Yeah, really. <laughs> certainly in our, the aging of our faces. Um, what do I think about that? Look, there are two of us. You know, we've done a lot before meeting one another. We've done a lot in different worlds and in different fields. And I think we would always say about one another that whilst we're very like-minded, we're good at different things. We egg each other on. There's a multiplier effect that comes from having two successful women in the room. Um, I think that the zeitgeist has moved with us in a way that we hadn't really anticipated when we first started talking about this three years ago because of Me Too and Time's Up. Mm. And I think diversity has become front page news. And a lot of these topics around female entrepreneurship, women in the boardroom, smashing the glass ceiling, many many of which were the subject matter for our book, Believe, Build, Become, which was um, out about six months ago, published by Penguin. Uh, I'm not sure that it would have commanded attention in the way that it has had, because what has happened and what has been the wind beneath our wings is that diversity makes great business sense and I'm not sure that the penny had necessarily dropped on that in the way that it has so for all of those reasons we've gone very fast but also because even on a bad day we're having a middling day today um <laughs> we sort of love it even when it's awful we love it and we're mm. on whatsapp from first thing in the morning to last thing at night and we love each other and we really don't have any moments with one another generally if one of us is up the other one's down and vice versa and we do lots of things that people find completely mad like go on holiday together and when we travel for business we share a room in fact when we are in LA we share a bed because of the configuration of the room you know we do things that male co-founders just don't do and we've never really had to force it we are each other's support network um without ever really verbalising the importance of that and without having to do that thing that we do get asked a lot, which is who does what and okay. how do you define... You know, it, it, we, we've never really had to We're good at draw up the list. passing, yeah. I think. Um, you know, that's been very natural between us and I think that is quite annoying for people because they like to go, well, hang on, who's the technical one? Yeah. Or, you know, who's the one who does sales? Or, you know, yeah. and actually we, we batten past and obviously there is a grey area between us you know in the sense that we are both good at things like brand and we're both um you know we're good with teams and various things like that um but I also think we've been able to go fast because the community the appetite from the community is there absolutely so the timing the timing yeah. is, is good but also you know we get energy from all of the 
members and the network around Albright and you see it making a difference. And so you want to do more. And we listen to them and talk to them about what they want us to do. And then we try and deliver it. And it's a very, what we do, what we've done through Albright um, is a very physical thing in the sense that you come up with this idea of imagine a building or a series of buildings which celebrate female talent all day, every day. Imagine a world where all of the art on the wall is by women and the wine behind the bar and we program events every day that help women to feel good about themselves to build their networks, which are never as strong as men's, to invest in their strength, whether that's physical through strength training or mental or emotional, just have a great laugh or listen to karaoke or opera. You know, and this is a, it's a bit of a crazy sort of thing to come up with and then to make that happen and to be able to spend time in those buildings every day where you've actualized the thing that we never had in our careers, which is loads of awesome women in the room all day, every day. And, you know, we spend a lot of time standing up and talking to groups of women now. And honestly, it never gets tired because we just never got to do it because there just weren't any women. Sure. So I think that that's the other thing that has enabled us to go so fast is that in life, and we talk about this a lot, with one another about what gives you energy and what takes away your energy. It's really important. And look, there's just life, right? And some of the stuff we have to do doesn't give anyone energy and never will. But nonetheless, that is how we try to divide and conquer because we get our energy in slightly different ways and we know how that works for one another. But what um, really binds us together is the energy that we gain from seeing our Albright community in the flesh and also online. You know, a lot of what we've built out, things like the Albright Academy which is for any woman anywhere, which enables them to connect and skill up. And there's loads more to come on that in terms of trying to create and replicate that buzz that comes from being in an Albright club, even if you're not in an Albright club. And even if you're never going to be in an Albright club because you don't happen to live in London or LA or New York or, you know, San Francisco, Mumbai, wherever we're going next. That's very, very energetic for us, very powerful for us. And it also means that the community powers itself because what we see happening was this vision that we had on a cocktail menu three years ago when we scribbled down Project Albright after the Madeline quote that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And if you come into one of our buildings in Neon, just to sort of really ram it home, we have Sisterhood Works, which is the name of our podcast series because we, we believe it. And I think... We believe it, we see it, we feel it every day. And so the the movement, if you like, without sounding pompous, but it's kind of like it's got nothing to do with us, but that, that's sort of how it feels every day, becomes self-powering, self-actualizing. And, and then when we think about what next and where we're going next, we've got New York, another London club opening this year, and we're exploring lots of different opportunities I was in Australia and Hong Kong before Christmas, you know, figuring all of that out. It's the community that drives all of that. So, you know, we're eternally grateful, eternally inspired, and we're listening because we're we're Mm. figuring this stuff out. It hasn't really been something like this before. So it's a reflection of what our members and community want. Sure. Well, I was thinking that as you were talking, you know, the timing, one thing, but also, as you said, you never had it before. You've built something that you wanted that didn't exist. And I think that, you know, if you generally, if you want something, somebody else out there wants the same thing. And you mentioned about networks and saying that, you know, networks, women's networks don't tend to be as strong as men's. And I feel like, you know, in the industries that I've worked in in the past, specifically in performing arts or in whatever it is, I felt like the women were always put against each other. It was a very competitive environment. I know other friends who've said the same thing in their industries, in whether it's business, TV, media, that it was almost like, you know, the men could work together because there was plenty of space, plenty of options, plenty of, you know, opportunities, roles, whereas there was almost like, oh, we need a woman or two. And so therefore women had to kind of, yeah, compete with one another. And it was almost even the the depiction of, you know, the boss being a bitch and being like a, she had to you know, fight her way to the top. Whereas I feel like now that landscape is changing and this whole collaboration is key, is no longer just like a, a nice saying. People actually are like, oh, we can work with other women. We can build businesses together. We can collaborate. And so I guess, you know, you probably see that every single day with the women in your communities. Yeah, we do. And I think women are natural collaborators because if you think about how we all are with our family and friends group, we, we tend to be 
um, the collaborators and we tend to have big networks there. But what has traditionally not happened is women haven't had those big networks through work. So they've tended to uh, come to work, do a good job with their head down, not necessarily telling everyone they're doing a great job and not thinking about moving beyond their sector and who they know beyond their sector. And I think that's what men have been doing um, for centuries. So I think for us, um, we really believe in sisterhood works, but we actually see it. So every day um, when we're in the club, you know, somebody will come up to me and say, you know, I just want to tell you, this is a really amazing thing. I've just met a woman here and we're now going to collaborate on this project or I've just hired somebody or I've just got the inspiration to go and ask for that pay rise or actually I've just got my business funded or I've just funded a business. So all of these things are happening and these conversations are happening every day and those collaborations are, you know, actually happening. They're not just something people are talking about. So I think um, that's a big change and I, I, I don't think that women or certainly the women in our community see that landscape of pitting themselves against each other. I just think those days are gone. I hope so. Wouldn't that be fantastic? I really do hope so. I think maybe depending as well on people's personalities, I think some people are driven by that competitive nature of, you know, I must, you know, there's apparently two two ways that motivate people when it comes to competition. It's either being better than somebody else or being better than they were before. So I think depending on, on your personality. But, you know, we talked then about how it seems to me anyway that the Albright has, you know, it's been so quick and so much has happened. And as you said, expanding to new territories again. But for anyone listening or, or in the future, if they're working on a business or they have a project in, in mind, an idea... If they don't have that, you know, the the speed or the, that they expect or it doesn't go well straight away or it's not received well straight away, when would, you know, in your opinion, when would you say, OK, you've just got to persevere, you know, adapt, keep with it, stick with it. And when is it actually time to kind of, you know, change the plan, scrap it and go back to the drawing board? You know, there are lots of different ways to answer that question. And partly it's about what are your personal objectives when you're working on an idea or a business proposition. And I think this is something we talk about a lot. We run in the clubs a female founders pitch series um, sponsored by HSBC that we do once a month across all of the clubs in different locations. And that has a very specific aim, which is to showcase female entrepreneurs in need of capital to scale up their business. And the reason that we do it is back to all of those stats that women don't raise capital. And in my um, universe of always growing businesses that need capital, need external investment, I was always told when I asked by male investors, well, we never see women. So we can't fund them because we never see them. So a big part of why we do female founders pitch day is to hold up a flag to say, you say that you don't see women, they're here. <laughs> you know, comes the building, listen to them through our podcast series, they're here and they're great businesses. That's because those women have a particular objective, which is to scale a business that requires external capital for whatever reason. So if you look at something like Albright, it's a capital intensive business because it's buildings and because it's digital content, a tech platform, et cetera, et cetera. So a big measure of success for us um, is whether or not anybody will write us a check to fund the business because we are growing the business for scale and we're growing the business for an exit. In other words, to deliver a return on capital for people who have invested in it. That's our particular objective. The flip of that objective is will anyone pay for what we're selling just to sort of boil it down to, mm. you know, hard tax and whatever that thing is. So for us, the concept was we think it would be fantastic to have a social club that was there for women, enlightened men, very welcome as our guests. And it took them from the beginning of their day to the end of their day, you know, all that stuff. Is anyone going to pay for that was the original test of whether this was just a lovely idea or whether it was a commercial proposition. So the, the two sides of it for us were, is anyone buying what we're selling and is anyone investing in our story? And then as it grows, it's, does it have the right metrics? Is it performing properly? Are enough people signing up as members? Are enough people buying breakfast, lunch, dinner, or enough people um, sponsoring the event? You know, is it working commercially? Mm. And so we are very tied to the performance of the business, A, because we've raised a lot of money. So we've raised £25 million in capital to fund the rollout. We'll continue to raise more. So we've got a board and shareholders. And to be clear, that is not everybody's experience, nor is it everybody's objective. And it's something that we talk about a lot in our book. 
There are plenty of, of women and men, but we have one dog in the fight, really, which is women. And I think that's what we're talking about today. Who want a side hustle, who want work-life balance, who want a business that's just them. As a reminder, the mean, i.e. the average number of employees that a female-run business has is two, them and one other, right? So it isn't always the experience of a woman starting a business that she wants to do what Anna and I are doing. And frankly, nor should it be, because this is, really is an occupation for crazy people to do it this way. The reason to emphasise that is I think that what can happen a bit in the culture of entrepreneurship is sort of fundraising and valuation porn. You know, I've raised yeah. this much money and the company's like, oh. you know, that is a certain track. Once you start on that track, you are building a business to sell it. That's all I really know how to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you build something and live with it, anything like that for 20 years, because I'm sort of, ha haven't really got that in me. But um, it, I think it's that, be really clear about your objectives. The first chapter of our book, um, and the beginning of the Albright Academy is called Project You because we think it's the thing that women don't invest time and energy in, which is to look yourself in the mirror and say, what do I want? What gives me energy and what doesn't? What's the objective? And then build something that matches that. Now, there are times to give up. But there are times not to give up, you know, and there's there's lots written about overnight successes of business. And indeed, that Love Home sort of story looks brilliant, doesn't it? Idea five years later. for three but, You know, in between that, there were horrendous moments. And there's a, 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 something I read once about what it's like to be an entrepreneur with this massive overnight success. And behind the scenes, there's generally sort of a decade of the founder chewing on glass, wanting to give up and not doing it. Of course, there's all of that. But on, on the other hand, that isn't what everybody wants. Mm. Um, final point on that is there are times just to drop it and move on. There are also versions of dropping it and moving on that Anna and I have done endlessly because... If you come up with something like Albright, which has got a very big blank canvas where the essay question is female empowerment at work. You know, we did lots of things and we tried lots of things and we will continue to that just don't really work or they're not worth the time or they don't make enough money. When we started at the very beginning, we were very clear that we wanted to back female entrepreneurs. It's something that I've done personally. We both really care about it. So we raised and invested a small venture capital fund. That didn't become the mainstay of our business because we came up with the idea for the clubs. and da, da, da. So we found a way to iterate that into Female Founders Pitch Day. The point being that Sometimes things just don't work, but it's what you do with the knowledge that they aren't working. Mm. And that isn't always the same as just giving up. Yeah, you can pivot, you can Absolutely. evolve, you can change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said that, you know, it shouldn't be everyone's goal and aspiration because I think in the era of comparison, we see everyone apparently doing everything and assume that that's what we should want Absolutely. or we should aspire or we should, you know, if you're if you're not doing it all, then you should want to. When actually I know some of the people who I think probably are the most happiest and content out of all of my friendship group might not think say that they're doing the most, but they don't want to. You know, your actions have to match your ambition. Absolutely. You're lucky yeah. if you've got a choice. You know, yeah. you should be pleased with that and choose how you want to live your life and keep changing it up because I don't think there is one path. I mean, one of the reasons that we, you know, we wrote the book um, was because actually what we believe is you'll go through all those pro processes that we talk about and then you'll start something else. So you'll start either a new job or you might start a new business or you might start a different, you know, path. And so you have to go and learn all of that and start all over again because it's not, there isn't just one sort of linear path through. No, and women's careers tend not to be linear because we have children often. Mm. Not always, but often. And because we think about things sometimes differently in different times in our life, depending on what else is going on. And that's OK. You mm. know, it doesn't just have to be a sort of charge for the finish line. Yeah. And it's not an if if not now, yeah, then yeah. maybe in sure. the future, you know, because yeah. you both have children. Yeah, you both have children. So, yeah, for anyone listening who maybe they have children and they think, oh, you know, I wish I'd done something like that, but I can't now because, you know, I've, I've had maternity leave or, or I've got young children or maybe even older children. What would your advice be to those women? No, it's, it's never, ever, ever too late. You know, I'm a, an old entrepreneur because I didn't start my entrepreneurial journey until I was in my 40s. Um, I ha we have people in the Albright who, in fact, I met somebody last week who had been... Um, 
she had been out of the of the workplace for 15 years and she was starting a new business and she was really excited and pumped about about it and i think brilliant why not and we're all going to be working for a long long time mm. and there's no such thing as i don't think anyway retiring at 55 60 mm-hmm. um so yeah plenty of time and do you think it's changed a little bit now for I personally do, just in general, that women working and mothers working, you know, I, I, I would say this actually, but I have felt some like mum shaming in the past around the fact that, you know, like, oh, you're travelling here or, oh, you're doing this job and, oh, you've, you know, you've got a young child and, you know, the kind of the concept that, yeah, actually dad does pickups as well and mum does you know homework and dad might cook the tea and actually you can both do it you know for me personally like I said that's how it works for us but I know that for some women and some families even it's still kind of you know like seen as that you've you've had children but now you're abandoning them because you want to have a career as well but also nobody ever knows what's really going on I mean we were just talking about it before we started the podcast this whole thing about Instagram life you know it seems a certain way you were on a work trip last week everyone thinks you're on holiday it's yep. not the case yep. so we make a lot of judgments about people's lives and how they look and the reality is often quite different but yeah I totally hear you on the whole it should be about parenting and not necessarily just what the mothers do mm, yeah and so I want to talk to you both about work ethic you've touched on it a little bit but as ambitious women who are leading the way for female entrepreneurs what are your own values when it comes to work ethic and this work-life balance that we hear so much of people talk about? I think it's important to try and do something you love. So as we said, you'll do numerous things probably um, during your career lifetime. So I think it is important to try and find the things you love because then it doesn't seem so much like work. Both of us are very, very hard workers. So we definitely have that ethic that we will do what needs to be done. You know, we have this whole thing around our joke, sort of whatever it takes. But really, we mean it. You know, you have to be prepared to work hard. If you want to build and scale a business, you have to be prepared to put the hours in. That doesn't mean to say that you need to be locked to your desk. Although sometimes this week we have been quite locked to to our desks. But normally, you know, I believe that technology is actually in many ways set us free so you can work from anywhere you know we do start whatsapping in the morning we do come up with great ideas when we're walking in the park at the weekend or whatever because it's our baby it's our business and we love what we do we're always problem solving Um, but I think you don't have to just do that chained to a computer Mm. I think in the book um, we talk about work-life blend rather than work-life balance I think for us it's important to tell it like it really is. We work really hard. Mm. We work every single day. Um, We fly a lot. It's hard. We've got kids. I go to LA for 24 hours every third week. You know, it's not a lot of fun, a lot of what we do. Um, But we are two female founders supporting one another. So we try to... um, blend where we can so we both do pick up of our kids on a friday we try we don't always we're not always successful in this but we spend friday morning together but not in the building because albright has a life of its own when you're in the building it's quite hard to get stuff done we try we always are incredibly understanding because we're both going through our kids are the same age of everything that ranges from speech days to sports days to you know so there's a shorthand with us that's never questioned which i think is one of the huge unspoken advantages of having a female co-founder who's the same age as you with kids at the same age we just do that stuff without even discussing it and both of us been going through this horrific 11 plus process with our eldest children you know and, and Sahana's taking her daughter someone I'm taking my son someone. yeah it's just life right so yeah. but we're whatsapping all the way I mean don't tell them but you know work-life blend I think I think you can beat yourself up a lot about work-life balance I think as entrepreneurs it is hard the sheer volume if you're going to scale a business in the way that we have for better for worse over two years you cannot do it by switching off your phone at six at night and not switching it back on until half past nine the following morning. You just mm. can't. That's but you can yeah, but you can still, um, we hope, um, have a good time in your life, be a good partner, be a good business partner, be a great mum. And technology does set us free with a blend and, and that's how, how we approach it. And yeah. and that's a choice. That's our choice. Yeah. It's not everyone's choice. I think if you don't 
choose to live your life like that, then I think there are, it is quite important to put boundaries up. You know, I know people who work for other people and there's this sort of expectation that they won't go and do the school play or they yeah. won't do sports day. And, you know, I think if those things are really important to you and that's your value um, and that's one of your values, then you have to think about whether that's the right place for you to work and also what your boundaries are Mm. Um, and I think that's a very personal individual decision yeah I agree I like that you know talking about having boundaries and I think for me I I actually worked with a business coach last year Lauren Arms she's wonderful and she actually framed it to me that I needed non-negotiables because she said Adrian you have boundaries and ideas of what you want but then when I like to please people please and I like to say yes and she said when someone asks you oh could you do this you're like oh I'll move that thing and oh could you you know maybe come an hour earlier you're like oh I can move that around and she said what you end up doing is you you you're you're so flexible that it's actually to your detriment so she said instead of just having boundaries which you feel like you can move every day you'll never stick to anything you've got to have your hard non-negotiables and tell other people what they are so whether that's you know a business partner or your husband or your agent or a friend say this is my non-negotiable so please don't ask me to change it and then you kind of that's what i've i've started to do and i've mm. tried to try my best to stick mm. to it where, where possible sounds good So, also mentioned about what's happening first thing in the morning, which brings me on perfectly to the power hour. So, for me, my power hour is the first hour of the day. It started almost two years ago now, and it honestly has changed my life. And then since starting this podcast, I've you know been fortunate enough to speak to so many different people in different industries and ask them if they have a morning routine, why they what gets them out of bed in the morning and what time, do they have an alarm? We've had lots of different, so many different things that people do first thing in the morning. So I'd love to know, ladies, from each of you, what time do you get up in the morning? Is it succinct? Do you have the same alarm time? And what's the first hour of your day like? So, Debbie? (laughs) I don't really like this question because it makes me sound like a maniac. Anyway, I'll answer it honestly. So I get up very early, um, quite away before six. What time? Um, About 20 past five, between 20 past and half past five. Do you have an alarm? I I do, but I don't need it. Okay. Okay. I get up, I do email, um, I get the kids stuff ready, I see the kids and then I train every day. Um, so and I and I've always longed to be a sort of yoga person and I can uh, sort of crank that up when I'm on holiday, but when I'm in London I have to sweat and I either box or throw weights around and I do it every every single, single day. day. Do you go to yeah. a class? Do you have a one to one coach? <clears throat> I go to a class. Yeah. So uh, either in our own um, fitness studio in Mayfair, where we have the stylist partnership with Stylist Strong, which are weights classes, or I go to a boxing gym called BXR. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had every, I've had trainers, I've had all sorts. I've got a gym in my house, I've got a boxing bag in my house. But I just find for me, um, Anna and I spend most of our days um, uh, dealing with teams and, and suggesting to people things that they might do. I don't want to have to think about what I'm going to do at first thing in the morning. I'm sort of hopeless in the gym. I, I need to be told either through a class. If I'm really stuck and I'm travelling, I crank up insanity on the iPad uh, for some Sean T. You know, Debbie, I can't believe thing. I haven't. Got, I have, can't believe I haven't given you the Fit app where you can do my workouts whenever you Were travel. You should. And also, Geddy Foster, who is a coach uh, at yeah, the yeah. at your studio, okay. she's also I on need there. It, cause I do Sean T. I've actually got into massive amounts of trouble in various hotel rooms for this sort of jumping. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> also, jet lag. Yeah, it's four o'clock in the morning. The volume of the thing. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> that is me. And then I turn up at the club. I generally the first in, and I we're very lucky in the club that we have access to fantastic people who can sort your hair out and all the rest of it. Because I have two versions of hair, which is either done or ponytails or nothing in between. So that's me. So I'm early, up and at them early. I like to get a good half an hour on email. Mm-hmm in before I leave the house. And is that you reacting or, or sending? So if some people say in the morning they send all their things out so that when everyone gets to their desk at nine they're waiting for a response or are you also responding and reacting as well? I think the, the challenge for us is it's a global business so there's always a lot in overnight from LA which you know has been a big adjustment for us just to really get our heads around how to manage that and I think I wasn't doing a great job last year of managing that 
just in terms of the balance of the day, you know, I do, I am an early to bed, early to rise person. And if I'm on the phone to LA at 11 at night, that sort of screws me up. So if I can stick to my routine, I'm not a fantastic sleeper, like my business partner who sleeps like the dead. But that's kind of how, <laughs> how it goes. Yeah. yeah. I do not go to bed as early or rise as early. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, Anna, yeah, tell us what about your morning routine um, and what time? So I get up at the same time every day. I also find the older you get, you also wake up that time in at the weekends, which is mm. really nice. I get up at half past six. Um, even though my kids now longer no longer need me at the weekends, I still wake up at half past six. It's very annoying. Um, and for me, I basically roll out of bed and before I start thinking about too much, I, that's when I do my exercise. So I don't do, uh, I don't punch bags. Um, I do about 20, 30 minutes of basically of sort of Pilates and stretching and, you know, various movements um to just sort of get in my body um i think because i i I sleep like the dead i wake up feeling quite stiff like the dead so i need to sort of get into my body um and then i basically spend probably the next half an hour i'm also i'm up before the rest of my household so that's my half an hour to myself um get everyone up have breakfast with my kids and then either i'm doing a school drop or i'm running um to work and i also try and walk briskly walk as well just to kind of get into my I'm much better in the mornings than I'm at night I'm very much a morning person so I can probably my output sort of two or three times what it would be um, in the evening so I try and get a lot done and ticked off although I am also terrible at doing all my emails whilst I'm walking and I'm definitely going to get either run over or mugged one of these days yes please do be careful a friend of mine actually was hit by a car recently because she was looking at a phone and she stepped across the road and was hit by a range rover so fortunately she's okay now but two things you mentioned then both that you both move so you both move in the mornings and i often encourage people to move first thing in the mornings i say you know it's not just about moving you know the physical body but it does engage both the mind and body together and also that if you just leave it on your to-do list for later on in the day other things might come and steal mm-hmm. that time from you and you know you won't you won't prioritize it but i like that you both said you know you move in a way that you like so you'd like to be told by a coach or in a class you know lift this weight punch this bag whereas you're doing a different kind of movement on your own and i think that really is the key because if you were to swap for a week you probably wouldn't it wouldn't be I optimal do may aj come and do boxing with me when we're in la which I also, I actually nice. love. Yeah, I love. It's right. a wee thing. But I really so I enjoy it. But you know what? It's a terrible thing. I liked it because I could do it. So isn't that terrible? I was like, oh, I didn't think I'd be able to do it. And then I could do it. And it was really fun because we were doing it together. I'm just not as disciplined as Debs I, in the sense that I cannot imagine getting up an hour earlier to do it. So it's my little treat when I'm with Debbie. But, but also um, Debs encouraged me to add weights to my routine Mm -hmm. because I wasn't doing that because I had a trainer for years and years who came to the house you know once or twice a week and then of course you then sort of develop and you do your own thing and then you know Debbie said you you need to add weights and so I added weights and that's helped and also that really helps if you don't have loads of time because it makes such a difference I mean sometimes at the weekend I don't do the weights and I'm like oh this is easy (laughs) yeah it does (laughs) it's quite nice like a treat yeah, and I think that that strength training for women has certainly become, you know, so much more popular. And I, don't, I think back in the day, it used to be like, oh, you know, women can't lift weights because you're going to, you know, change your body shape or you're going to look a certain way. And actually, I think the reality is that women want to feel strong and it's not just a physical, but actually, you know, there's the, the neuropathways between the brain and the body. They go both ways, body and brain. So, for example, if you're in, a, you know, a held position like a high plank and you're engaging the core and your, you know, your muscles under tension and you're feeling your body is actually, you know, the the message to the brain is that I am strong, I can endure. And the same, you know, with with yoga pose, if your arms are stretched up to the sky, gaze lifted, heart open, chest open, it's like, I am feeling freedom, I am feeling joy. It kind of goes both ways. So I think starting your day like that is is powerful. I have to say, my weights are definitely not as heavy as Debbie's. We sometimes train together, but it's hilarious because Debs could be a trainer, like she knows so much about it. And sometimes we'll do a class and then she looks at me and she's like, no, no, not that one. That'll kill you. Or hang on, you can go up a kilo. Yeah. Well, as I said, Geddy Foster, so she is a coach on, um, she's the head of fitness at Fit, but she's also a coach in your strength studio. So have either of you been to her class? She's got red hair. You wouldn't miss yes, her. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. She's yeah, small have. but mighty, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I'm yeah. always so impressed when I see some of these really kind of very slight people picking up kind of 
serious weight. Yeah. I'm very impressed. Now I'm I'm afraid I'm strong, but I'm not that strong. You're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get to my closing question, ladies, I would love to know for the listeners, where can they find out more about the Albright and how can they become a member? So go to Albright Collective uh, and there's everything that you need to know about Albright in terms of how to apply to be a member of one of our clubs here in the US, but also how to sign up to the Albright Academy and Albright Connect, which is our connection app for women. And you'll find us on social media and Instagram and hashtag for us, various hashtags, but Sisterhood Works uh, is one of them. And that's also the name of our podcast series that you can find uh, in all the obvious places. And the format is similar and dissimilar to yours, but essentially focused on what is it that drives successful women and who are the women in their lives that have got them to where they are today. Fantastic. And a question that's been asked to me before about the membership. If someone's not a member but they wanted to come and see what the club's about or there was an event, can people come buy a ticket just for an event or is it members only? It's members only, but also you can be a guest of a member. And if you want to come and see what the club's all about, then just book in and come and have a tour. Great, thank you. Okay, so my closing question for you both. I am obsessed with the concept of time and I think, you know, if we could buy more time then it would be sold out because it's the one thing we can't get more of and I think it's the most valuable thing you can give to another person, the most valuable thing that we have. So if you had one extra hour of each day, there's going to be 25 hours in the day from now on, what would you each use the extra hour to do? Anna? I would read more books I love reading. I don't get enough time because I'm usually doing my emails instead of reading. Or if I try and read before I go to sleep, I fall asleep after about two pages. So I would love to do that. Um, I think there's a lot more to learn. So I think I would spend my hour learning. Great. Debbie? That's a hard one because reading more books is a good one. I'm on the board of the Women's Prize for Fiction. So I generally have quite a lot of books to get through and I'm a massive reader. But unfortunately, that sometimes clashes with my early to bed uh, body clock. Um, my other great love is theatre. Um, I was on the board of the Hampstead Theatre for six years until last year and I'm not seeing enough theatre at the moment essentially because there's a lot going on and by the time it gets to the evening I'm quite tired. So I would commit to weekly theatre as I used to do in order to ensure that I'm opening my mind and really loving being in London, which is a big part of why we're in London, right? Because we get to do all that sort of stuff and if you're not taking advantage of it, you feel a bit frustrated. It's a a theatre hour for me. Brilliant. Sounds fantastic. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for giving us your time today and all of your knowledge and insight. I'm sure the listeners are going to really, really enjoy and get so much value from this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have a fantastic week. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.